morning we look at John chapter 17 verses 6 to 19 and the title of our message is Jesus praying for his disciples. So this morning we continue to look at the public prayer of our Lord before his arrest, his trial and crucifixion. This is about to happen in just a few hours. I have mentioned to you that we will be spending um, three weeks in John 17, this, this marvellous chapter, often referred to as the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. Now, I know that uh, over the, the past few years, I have trained my people to get used to long series. We uh, spent... Uh, we started doing Psalms, for example, and the title of that series was My Favourite Psalms, and we ended up doing 50 of them. Um, then we spent about 50 weeks, I think it was in Genesis, uh, and now we, uh, we're spending quite a few weeks and months uh, on, in John, chapter, uh, John, the whole of the book of John. Now, just to give you an idea as to measure me against some of these other guys, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 48 sermons on John chapter 17. All right. John Montgomery Boyce preached 16 sermons on it. And one of the great Puritans, Thomas Manton, who was a chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, preached 45 sermons on it. And you poor things are finding it difficult because I'm going to spend three weeks on it feel sorry for you. Now, we looked at the first five verses a week previous to last where Jesus is praying to the Father for himself and the task ahead and what a task it is. And Jesus prays to the Father a prayer of consecration of himself for the sacrifice at Calvary, the greatest sacrifice that would ever be offered. And he concluded with these beautiful, tender words in chapter 17, verse 5. And this is what he said. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I was thinking about these words. And Jesus here seeking to glorify the Father in his sacrifice. But afterwards, after the sacrifice, after the resurrection, after the 40 days, he is ascended to heaven and returns to the Father. Obviously for us mortals, it is a little bit hard to fully appreciate the the communication in the Godhead as we have here between the Father and the Son. But I like to think of it, it was something like a son who longs to see his father after a period of separation. Maybe you've had one of these conversations with your father or as a father with your son. So he calls him ahead of time and tells him, Dad, after I come back, 
it will be just like the good old days. That to me is, is, is what he's saying here in verse 5, which feeds into what he will say to us in the rest of the chapter. Now in the text before us, Jesus continues his prayer. He prayed for himself in the first five verses. Now he's praying for the 11 disciples who are left. Now obviously there's not exclusive praying about himself and about the disciples. There is an overlap, but I'm just giving you the, 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 the breakdown, the, the best way we can understand this chapter. Now our text for this morning divides itself into two major sections from verses 6 to 10 which looks back on the time Jesus spent with his disciples until, up until the present moment when he's about to, to leave them. And then in verses 11 to 19, which addresses the disciples' significant needs, which they will have many, many needs and many challenges because of the fact that he will no longer be with them. He is departing to be with the Father. So let's look at, first of all, we're going to look at verses 6 to 10, for the training that has been completed. He says in verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now Christians often think of Jesus as God's gift to us. And there is obviously This is true. For God so loved the world that he gave. But we really think of ourselves as God's gift to Jesus. Do we? It's a thought, isn't it? It, it, It's a marvelous thought. And, 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 And this text, this is what it points to. This is what it's saying to us here. Now, we tend to face these put-downs every now and then for, for one reason or another. Maybe when we get a little bit of a, a big head and uh, the, the put-down to, to someone who thinks he's, you know, a bit too highly of themselves is who do you think you are? What, God's gift to women, God's gift to mankind? Who do you think you are? Yet, as a Christian, we can come back with, well, well, I'm actually God's gift to Jesus. Right? You can come back with that one. Uh, and, and, okay, then, show me the verse. Well, here it is. <laughs> it's a marvelous truth, isn't it? And, and why, why is this so... Why is it even better than what it sounds like? Because God has always chosen to work through weak human vessels. That's his preferred way to work. Now, this is somewhat perplexing to those of other religions because, and, and we've just been part of a, uh, a seminar, a debate between James White and a, and a Muslim scholar, uh, Dr. Kunde. And one of the things that Dr. Kunde highlighted was the fact that in Islam, there are four prerequisites for somebody to be a prophet or to be a messenger from, from their God. 
One of those is intelligence. Another one is that they have to be perfect. Basically perfect. They have to be sinless. And uh, this is something that is, in the words of Scripture, if that was the qualification for God's servants, nobody (laughs) would qualify The 12 are selected according to God's sovereign choice, not grounded on any particular qualities or gifts or graces. Judas was among them, for goodness sake. Thomas is still there with his doubts. And Peter is there with his wobbling devotion. Now, these original 12 were chosen deliberately, purposefully, to illustrate the power of God in the weakest of men and women. Now, Paul said, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, didn't he? Chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Now, notice that virtually everything... Jesus claims to have accomplished is described in the past tense. And we realize that some of these accomplished items are not yet realized. But Jesus, the way Jesus talks, it's like they have already been accomplished. But we know that these words will eventually prove to be true. And it's encouraging to realize that even before his disciples become what they will be, our Lord can speak confidently about them as though they have already attained the destiny. It's not like Jesus saying, well, Father, let's just see what happens. You know, let's just hope for the best. Jesus doesn't pray like that. What Jesus says happens even though he's working with humans. Imperfect humans. But why, how can he declare that with such confidence? Because he is working through them. His power is in them. And they will do what he has empowered them, commissioned them to do. As though they have already attained their destiny. That's confidence, isn't it? That is confidence. Your destiny and my destiny is ultimately in his hands. What he began, the Bible tells us he will bring it to pass. If it depended on you and me, none of this will, you know, we just hope for the best. But the confidence is is not in the flesh. The confidence is, is actually in the spirit who is within us. That is where the confidence comes from. Now, what are some of the things that Jesus mentions here? He says in verse 6, he says, they belong to the Father. They belong to the Father in eternity past, he says that. Then he says, they were given to Jesus by the Father, verse 6. They have obeyed the Father's word, verse 6. They understand all that Jesus was, all that Jesus was given came from the Father, that's verse 7. They have accepted the teaching Jesus has given them from the Father, that is verse 8. And now his disciples 
understand and believe Jesus was sent into the world by the Father. That is verse 8. That's a lot to take in. But Jesus is saying, well, this is what they understand. This is what they believe. Jesus has accomplished all that the Father has sent him to do. In terms of obviously equipping the disciples for their mission. Of course, his atoning work on Calvary is still ahead. But that too is spoken of as good as done. This is why in just a few hours he will declare from the cross what, what words? It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. He is now free to return to the Father because he has accomplished all that the Father has given him to do. Now, some obviously struggle with the idea, the description of the disciples as those who have obeyed his word. And, and many argue that these words simply don't fit the, uh, the facts or the description. We have mentioned many times, even just a few verses earlier, how immature the disciples were. However, even when considering the fact that their faith was very weak, it was very, you know, like babies, like children, that's the way Jesus described them, that does not mean that their faith was not genuine, that it wasn't real. Because you see, God can do amazing things with weak yet honest, simple faith. Uncomplicated. Simply believes what God says. And Jesus honoured the desperate plea. We know this because Jesus honoured the desperate plea of of a father who admitted, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't it? from Mark chapter 9. But God can do a lot with a little. Even with very little faith, God can make it grow and grow and grow. Now, we move to Jesus praying for their safety. For their safety from verses 11 to 15. He says, I will remain in the world no longer But they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. What is Jesus praying here? What is he praying for? The request of our Lord is that the Father keep his disciples safe. Jesus says, why is he praying this? Because Jesus says, while I was here, I looked after them. I kept them safe. But then he prays for their safety because he will no longer be there. He's on the way back to the Father, so he has to pray. It's it's like... Father giving 
instructions to the family says, look, look after this, look after that. And then perhaps you tell a friend or a neighbor, please look after my kids because I'm not going to be around, that type of thing, right? Pray for safety. But is, it, but is there more to it than this? He prays for three things. In verse 11, he prays for their unity so that they may be one as we are one. It's not surprising that Jesus saw unity as, as a problem in the future. Uh, a few times we have seen the disciples argue with one another about, for example, who was the greatest. And uh, it wasn't just a matter of them getting along either. They had different characters, but it wasn't just a matter of them getting along. It was a matter of them staying together as a group. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples didn't actually gather together for a prayer meeting. We need to pray about this. They all fled. That's what Mark tells us, Mark 14. And even after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples in John 20 says they all went back to their homes even after Jesus rose from the dead. The unity would happen, but not until, or not a, until after the Lord's departure. And that was in Acts chapter 1, verse 12 onwards. Now, while Christian unity sounds simple enough, it is actually a complex issue. Um, our late brother Gordon Shaw used to say, if you tie two cats together by their tails, uh, you might have union, but you're not going to have unity. <laughs> that was one of his phrases. Now, there should never be division over matters like race or colour or economic status, or education status. However, when it comes to sin, immorality, heresy, we certainly cannot compromise for the sake of unity. This is going to be an, a big issue in our denomination as it is in many others coming into the future. I'm just giving you a heads up. This was a big issue in the early church. has been a big issue 2,000 years since. This is why in his second letter, the same writer of the gospel in his second letter to John actually writes to the churches in, one, in 2 John 1, 9 to 11, this is what he says. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Wow. Black and white, isn't it? 
And this is coming from the apostle of love. Interestingly, the apostle of love is the one who speaks more about hate than any other apostle. But when you think about it, it is actually those who continue in unrepentant sin and teach heresy who are the ones who are actually dividing the church. When you think about it, as history tells us, for this reason, they should be put out of the fellowship to avoid more divisions, to avoid the cancer to spread. So, first of all, protect their unity. Secondly, protect them from the evil one. Verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, this is going to sound a little bit controversial, if what I've already said isn't controversial enough. But one surprising surprising thing in the Bible, as you read it, is you might find just how little God seems to care for the ease, for the comfort, and and even the the physical well-being of his people. (sighs) Can you just repeat that? In the Old Testament, we don't see God coddling his own even while they are risking life and limb. In Hebrews 11, for example, in verse 37, he says, describing the saints of the Old Testament, the writer of the Hebrews says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, even being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Who wants to be a follower of God with that description? In the New Testament, there also appears to be very little concern for our comfort. Jesus didn't actually plead that the Father would shelter and and, and protect his disciples by putting this, this bubble, this protective bubble around them. Wish he had, but no. He didn't even pray that he'd take them out of the world. Suddenly you're a believer and away you go. Another one saved, out of the world. He didn't pray for that. Instead, he asked, what does he ask for? That you should keep them from the evil one. Jesus was more concerned for their character than for their physical safety. Please understand that. Jesus is more concerned about their character than their physical safety. Please don't think Don't walk away from here this morning thinking that Jesus is unconcerned about what happens to you. No. He cares more than you know. But above that, he wants to accomplish his purposes through you. And if that means that you have to spend three, four weeks in a hospital bed, 
in intensive care, whatever that might mean, if that is the way that God wants to glorify himself through you, then that's what's going to happen. Many times, God's love means tough love. I hope you get that. I hope you get that. The world will hate the disciples. The world will oppose them. But behind the world, behind the resistance, is who? It's actually Satan, the devil. He is the ultimate source of all the opposition which seeks to undermine the faith of believers. to to, to defeat their witness in the world. Behind all of that is Satan. He is the one who desires to rob believers of their unity, to rob believers of their ultimate joy. And we read those words in Scripture, yet we somehow find it hard to relate. You know, he's saying because you, you go to these other churches and it's all... Well, if you're not there, brother, then it's your lack of faith. If, you, if, you, if you're struggling, if you're sick, if, you, if you're not a millionaire, then obviously it's your lack of faith. No, that's not the Bible I read. See if you can relate to these words of the Apostle Paul, where the real struggle is. With, this is the heart, this is the heat of the battle. This is the the front line, as you were. He wrote to the Ephesians in in chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you, why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Ultimately, that's the enemy. We need to know who our real enemy is what else does Jesus pray for to protect their mission verse 18 as you sent me into the world he said I have sent them into the world now this is what Jesus is about to do he's about to send his disciples into the world to proclaim the gospel into a world, you think that things are bad today, right? And you're probably right. They're pretty bad. We are plumbing the depths of stupidity in so many areas. And it's going to keep going. They're going to keep digging to see how low we can get. It's for a while yet. But the times in which these disciples lived, I, from what history tells us, was a hundred times worse than what we have now. A hundred times worse. A hundred times more violent, corrupt and depraved than ours. And this is the real, you know there's a whole movie series called Mission Impossible? Well, this is Mission Impossible. 
being kept safe didn't mean that they're not going to experience trouble. It means that they will be kept safe until that time where their mission is complete, their mission is accomplished. Being kept, kept safe so that they can continue the mission of Jesus on earth. Each of their lives, however, has a use-by date, if you know what I mean. Same as you, same as mine. Our days are numbered in the Lord's hands. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they will not be killed, they will not be martyred until God said, this is it, this is the end of the road. They will go to trials, just like the Apostle Paul, many times. They will be stoned, they will be persecuted, just like Paul and many others. And just about all of the disciples, except for for John, they were all martyred for their faith. How? How did they do it? How would they do it? In 300 years, the whole of the empire will become Christian. Again, as I've said before, this was the possible, possibly the worst thing that could happen to, to Christianity when it became popular. It was, much, it was certainly much stronger when it was totally uncool to be a Christian. But anyway, let's not go there. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the... Uh, Standard Oil Company. Standard Oil Company was actually started by um, the good old Rockefeller. You know who the Rockefellers are, right? Um, he's the original Jed Clampett, I think. And uh, he, uh, by this stage, the Standard Oil Company was a humongous uh, company worldwide. And they wanted to keep expanding into into Asia and many parts of the world. And uh, they saw that the church actually sent missionaries into some of these, you know, God-forsaken countries. And they wanted to use the missionaries as ways that they could do more business behind them. So um, Standard Oil uh, offered this enormous amount of money to a missionary who was in China so that this missionary apart from working for God, would actually be working for Standard Oil, you know, to help with the presence of Standard Oil in China. And the missionary turned them down. Lo and behold, they double the offer. They doubled it. He turned them down again. And the company, Standard Oil, said, well, what do you want? We can't give you any more money than that. And he said, the money doesn't have anything to do with it. The job is too small. This, brothers and sisters, this is the greatest enterprise. The ones that you and I are sent to do. Whatever work you do, Whatever job you do is, is amazing. I'm sure God has given you talents and skills to do be the best that you can at that. To be a mother, to be a father, to be a servant, 
But remember, that is only has significance for, for this life. What you do for the kingdom has significance into eternity. So whether you're a, a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker is good. The fact that you're a son and daughter of God, that is amazing. And he has gifted you for mission into this world. And lastly, not unrelated, obviously, Jesus prays for their sanctity, for their sanctity in verses 16 to 19. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, we looked at that, I have sent them into the world, verse 18, for them, and then in verse 18, for them I sanctify myself that they may be truly, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, unfortunately, the word saint has been hijacked somewhat by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Fact is, however, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you, yes, that is you, are a saint. St. George, there you go. <laughs> there is a club named after you, actually. Uh, <laughs> now, the word sanctify means what? To, to set apart, to, to consecrate for a religious purpose. Uh, no one is saved or justified who is not being sanctified as a result of being justified. Just to be clear, to sanctify never means to this, to this sinless perfection of a believer. Justification, here's a bit of doctrine, justification is a one-time act. Sanctification is a lifelong process. Justification, sanctification, together, one happens once, the other one continues. But you are not justified through sanctification. You continue in your work because you have been justified. Yet there is no justification without sanctification. This is the fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Now Jesus here is highlighting the fact that without God's truth, there is no sanctification. Only God's word is truth. As Christians, as faithful believers, we believe in absolute truth, not relative truth, because as someone said, God's truth has no relatives. And we base our convictions on the Bible. There is, again, just like in 2,000 years, another move, to move away from God's absolute truth and let's test how far we can go. But as I get older, even in my 55 years of travelling around the sun, I'm finding new and new appreciation for God's truth. 
even in, the, in my short life compared to eternity. There's nothing new under the sun when it comes to the corrupt evil of men. And some of them are even called Christians who want to move away from God's truth. It is sad. Some of the stuff that we are seeing today boggles the mind. And even though we might not know the truth as we really want to know, God uses what we do know as a way to sanctify us, to continue to equip us, to move us more in the right direction towards the truth rather than away from it. And the, the reason why the world seems so dark is because we have seen the light and we can see the contrast. That's why. And we know the one we worship because he always speaks the truth. And truth is reality. Truth is the way things really are. There's no shades, black or white. That's how he speaks. Now, there was a young, as a conclusion, I'll tell you this story, there was a, there was a young man who had entered a monastery, a monastery and he wrote to his father just saying, look, how wonderful it was to be there. He said every, every morning at 2 a.m., at 2 a.m. every morning, the men would rise to chant ancient sacred songs and uh, so on and so forth. And that was the, sort of the gist of his letter. Now, the father wisely wrote back and he said, Dear son, your mother and I are, are so happy to know that you have found your vocation. But always remember one thing. We too, and many parents like us living in the world, have arisen on numerous occasions at 2 a.m. in the morning to feed our babies and in the process have found our own vocation equally sacred. Now, the essence, the essence of the Lord Jesus Christ, his prayer for his followers was this. And if you take nothing else from this morning, I've given you plenty. The essence is this, keep them in the world, but keep the world out of them. That's the essence of Jesus' prayer. Now, living a God-honouring life in an evil world is not primarily, even though we would like that, it's not primarily about living in the right neighbourhood, the right school. It is, however, a matter of the right inner separation. What's most important is not where we live, but actually how we live. We must live in the world, but let's make sure that we keep the world and its values from living in us. Very important. And we all know that it's very difficult to maintain this, to, to be in the world and not of it. And I'll say it again, we cannot possibly do this on our own. But greater is he that is in us and the one that is in the world.
Remember that when you are challenged. And we desperately need God's help through the spirit of truth. So we take into our hearts the word of truth, obey his word, and that is how we live each and every day for his glory. Amen. And we're going to sing thine.